Thank you, Kevin, and thank you, Trinity Church. It's a delight. Uh, it really is a delight to be here, not only to be here this morning, but to be uh, with you when I'm not preaching in another pulpit somewhere in our presbytery. Um, we've actually been here for a year, believe it or not, but we've been uh, every summer or every uh, Sunday during the summer, we were at a, a different church in the presbytery. As has been mentioned, uh, I'm not Alan Taha. He's a lot shorter than I am. <laughs> And I'm not Kevin Witten. He's a lot older than I am. Uh, it is a delight to be with you. So thank you for this wonderful privilege. I'm going to ask you to stand in a moment. But before I do, let me give you a couple of things uh, by way of introduction. As you're turning to Romans chapter 9, we're going to continue in that study. If you're new to us, all your faces look new to me. So I don't know who's new and who's not. But if you're new to us, we are preaching through the book of Romans, line by line, precept on precept. And we are today in the last part of Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. I'll have to say that Alan is a lot smarter than I thought he was. He planned out this particular uh, series through the book of Romans, and he gets to the hardest chapter in the entire book, and he has Kevin preaching last week, and he has the new guy preaching this week while he's on a cruise ship somewhere uh, in the Bahamas or something like that. This is a, a very difficult text. It is a text that we as Reformed thinkers oftentimes turn to when we are talking about the doctrine of predestination or the doctrine of election or the doctrine of grace, which simply is this, that we do not choose God, but God chooses us. He takes the first step towards us. We were dead in our sins and transgressions, but he is the one who makes us alive. It's not by my merit, not my will, not my decision that I come to Christ. We all come kicking and screaming in many ways, but we come because he has ordained that we come. In our Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith, there is an entire chapter on God's sovereign electing decrees. And one of the last statements in the last paragraph is something like this that says, this is a difficult doctrine and it ought to be handled with great care and gentleness. I hope to do that today if you're here today and this is not a doctrine that you're convinced of. Let me say by way of introduction as well, a lot of the application that I am about to make is autobiographical. I did not grow up in the Reformed tradition and I hurled many a book across the room that taught the doctrine of predestination. I broke many spines of many books, literally throwing them across the room because I just could not wrap my arms around this. How in the world was this something that would be biblical? So this is, auto, it's ironic that here I am preaching this particular passage today, one who disagreed with it for so, so long. And I hope to do this with gentleness and love and affection as if perhaps you're processing through uh, this particular doctrine. One of the hardest ones, and yet here it is. God has said it. Not me, but God has said it. Out of love and affection for his holy infallible word, join me in standing. Let's give our full attention to the reading and preaching of his word. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. Hear now the very word of God. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in this very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though a number of the sons of Israel be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Open our eyes to behold beautiful things from this portion of your holy will, we ask. Help us to see the power that is yours. Help us to see our place in this passage, that it is nowhere to be found, but the focus on this passage is you and your power and your will for your people. Bless us to that end, then we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please, friends, be seated. Well, I am a native Texan, born and raised in the Dallas area, and we Texans are known for certain words and phrases that we use that give us away as Texans. We're all familiar with many of those, like get instead of get, or fixin' to, I'm fixin' to go get me some breakfast, or y'all, I even heard that in the announcements this morning, or the plural of y'all, which is all y'all. We use these words because they are familiar to us. The last few weeks and months, a couple of others have become known to me, and I've been listening for them and hearing them, your homework this particular week. The first one is, do what? We say that a lot, do what? And then there's this one as well. This one that's uh, that, uh, the, the title of the sermon. I, I tell you what. I tell you what. I wouldn't do it like that. I, I, I tell you what. Uh, that, that's unfamiliar to me. We say these quite often. Just this past week, I flew up to Chicago on Wednesday to get my daughter and grandson and drive them down to Texas where they're moving here to the hill country. And we went through uh, Illinois. We went through Missouri. We went through Arkansas. And then we got into Texas, the uh, third hotel that we stayed in in Sulphur Springs, Texas, and it started to rain outside, and the two clerks behind the counter, one of them said to the other, I tell you what, if a tornado comes and this place is open, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be back home where I need to be. We use these words all the time. 
And we use these words, phrases sometimes with God as well. When we read something in Scripture, autobiographical, remember that. When we read something in Scripture, we say, do what? You haven't chosen God. God has chosen you. Do what? When we read things like that, we argue back many times with God. I tell you what, that's not something I think I can get my arms around. Or I tell you what, if I were God, it certainly wouldn't be that way. We do that, friends, because of our desire to have power. We want power for just about everything. We want power in our life. We want power for the decisions that we make. We want power for the things that we want to un unfold the way we want them to unfold. We want that power instead of relinquishing that power and letting God be sovereign, which, by the way, simply means that he is all-powerful to reign and rule and to do whatever he has determined and decreed. There is never a time that God is sitting on his throne in heaven saying, whoops, what am I going to do now? Sovereignty means that he has a plan and he has the power to unfold that plan. And that's what this book is all about. Remember just back a few weeks ago, back in the very first chapter, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul tells us what this book is about. It's about two things. It's about power and it's about righteousness. And he says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for, power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul sets us up then at the very beginning of the book on the two points that he simply wants to make throughout the entire letter, and that is God's power and God's righteousness. His ability to do what he has ordained that he will do, and righteousness simply meaning this, a fancy word for our standing before God. Think of the word righteousness as a legal term because that's what it is. When God looks down at us and we're standing in his presence, how does he see us? Does he see us corrupt in every part of our being, sinners who deserve to be punished? Or does he see us covered by the blood of Christ, righteous by faith and therefore his beloved? From the beginning, Paul has set up these two points, and here's what's taken place. The Jews now have said, as Pastor Kevin told us last week in the beginning part of chapter 9, they were the ones of the covenant. They were the ones of the promise. They were the ones that were given the promise to be heirs, the chosen people, ethnic Israel. And so they saw themselves as in, on the inside, because of this promise of God. And Paul comes along and says, not all Israel is Israel. You may think that you are, but you are not. Chapter 9 doesn't actually surprise us, shouldn't surprise us, doesn't sneak up on us from out of nowhere, because back in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, verse 25, he talked about the circumcision, and in verse 28, no Jew is a Jew merely outwardly, uh, no circumcision is an outward or physical, but it is a Jew, you are a Jew inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, he said in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. And then in chapter 3, he said, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? 
He's just now getting around to answering that particular question as he's telling his audience as they're reading this letter that you may think that you're a Jew and not be a Jew. In chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, he says, I have an anguish in my heart for my people, my Jewish beloved people, because not all of them are going to be saved. And next week we'll read in chapter 10, verse 1, the desire of my heart is that all Israel would be saved. And he'll go on to say, you can have a zeal for the Lord and still not be saved. Paul is saying this, you can say that you are on the inside, but you're not on the inside inside just because you are declaring it, just because you think that you're following all the rules and doing what God has told you to do and therefore you're in. You are on the inside only when God circumcises your heart and gives you his righteousness by his power by his righteousness. And they are left going, do what? I tell you what, that doesn't make sense to me. I am ethnic Israel. That's the promise that he's given me. Do what, Paul? What are you saying? This is out of, out of the blue. You've lost your ever-loving mind. But from the very beginning, Paul has been saying this, and even given us three generations He's been talking about Abraham. Remember Abraham? He's the guy from Ur. No other guy from Ur was chosen. Isaac, not Ishmael, the second generation. Jacob, not Esau, as we heard like last week. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Paul has been laying this out from the beginning of the letter. This is my power, my righteousness. Why? in order that I might make known the riches of my glory, as he says in verse 23. We may want that power. We may question, do what? I tell you what, I wouldn't do it that way. But this is here, my friends, because God is revealing his glory through his power and righteousness, declaring that he alone is God. What a beautiful passage this actually is. If you think about it, and I hope by the time we get to the end of it, you will see the same beauty. This passage is not about you. This passage is not about me. This passage is about God, His power, and His righteousness to do all that He has ordained that He would do. So Paul now sets everything up. Back in chapter 9, verse 6, he precluded a question by saying, I bet you think that the word of the Lord has failed, but the word of the Lord has not failed, he says in chapter 9, verse 6. He's explaining all of this stuff about how God has sovereignly chosen who he wants to choose, and not just because you think that you're part of ethnic Israel or you on the inside, but only those have had circumcision by the heart and those that he has declared righteous. You may think God's promise to you has failed, but it's not. And that leads now to two questions, simply two points of, of the, the rest of this particular chapter. And the first question is found in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Do what? Do what? What, what are you saying, Paul? Is there injustice then on God's part? Individuals then and individuals today, autobiographical, blame God for his actions. Blame God for doing it the way he wants to do it because we say that's not fair. That's simply not fair. 
And I say to that now, do we really want to start with God's justice instead of God's mercy? Do we really want to begin with justice, what's fair? Paul has set that up for us from the beginning of the letter, hadn't he? In chapter 3, what we just read in the law passage, there are none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You break God's law with one little jot or tittle, you've break, broken it all. None of us are righteous, so why would we want to begin with, righteous, or with the justice? Why would we want to ask a question, is God then unjust by doing things the way he wants to do? We do that because in the back of our minds, this may not be you, but I'm certain it is of me, I, I cling to my own merit. I cling to at least something. It may not, you know, it may not be uh, uh, very much at all. God did a great big work in me, and then I just kind of finished it and jumped over that last little part because, doggone it, I'm a, people like me, and I'm a nice guy. I'm a lot better than that guy over there, Right? We want to cling to that merit. We want to hold on to that because down deep we think that there is something better in us than in others. And so we start with justice. Is God then unjust? Okay, God, you can go ahead and do all that you want to do with those really, really bad people. Those people that I have declared bad, Osama bin Laden and Adolf Hitler and those types. Oh, yeah, you can, you can pour out your wrath on them. But you're, you're fortunate to have me on your team. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm doing you a favor. I'm, I'm really a, a great guy. But who are we, friends? What do we deserve? Paul has already answered that question. We deserve the wrath of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. All of us deserve his wrath, his punishment. Punishment for our own sins since the fall, as we heard from Elder Kelly. Since the fall, this is who we are, corrupt in every part of our being. But you know what? Think about this, friends. If God really did work on merit, that really wouldn't be fair, would it? Because not all of us have the same upbringing. I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. You may not have grown up in a Christian home. I had the privilege of a mother and a father. Some people don't have a mother. Some don't have a father. Some don't have either one. Orphans. But all of us have a different upbringing, and therefore, if it were based on merit, and I had all of this stuff taught to me as a child, it would be easy for me to make a decision for Jesus. But for someone who's apart from that upbringing, it would be much more difficult for them to make a decision for Jesus. Basing it on merit would never be fair. But it's not based on merit. That's Paul's point. What do we deserve? We deserve the wrath of God. Is God unjust? Do what? I tell you what, I wouldn't do it that way, we say. But look where God begins, friends. Verse 15. He begins not with justice, but he begins with mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. He says it again in verse 18. Friends, there is a difference. Listen very carefully. There is a difference between grace and mercy. Grace, think of it like this. Grace starts with the letter G, and get, get starts with the letter G. Grace, I get something that I do not deserve. I get the unmerited favor of a loving, compassionate, and merciful God. I get to be His beloved. 
mercy. I don't get what I do deserve. I deserve to be cast into the deepest, darkest parts of hell. But because of his mercy, God who is rich in mercy, he has made me alive in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's telling them here. And Paul points them back to scripture over and over again through the book. Look at the scriptures, look at the scriptures, look at the scriptures. He does that with two fours, F-O-R. Look at the first one in verse 15. Four, he says to Moses, he's answered the question, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? By no means. You could not make a more stressful negative response. There are two words in Greek, ooh and may, that give us the word no. One you use when you're expecting a yes answer, and one you use when you're expecting a no answer. And when you put the two together, ume, it is the absolute no possible way. God forbid, as the old translation used to say, no, no, a thousand times no. Is God unjust? By no means. Ume, God forbid. For, and he drives them back to Scripture. For he said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. He's quoting Exodus. When the children of Israel, those who thought they were on the inside, took all of their jewelry and they melted it down and they made a golden calf. And they bowed down to that calf. And Moses comes down off the mountain and he says, what in the world have you done? And God does not turn his back. He goes off with Moses and he says to Moses, you cannot see me put you in the cleft of the rock, and he passes by. Moses desires to see the glory of God, and God says, here's how you're going to see my glory. I'm not going to cast them into the deepest, darkest parts of hell, but I'm going to have mercy on my people. And then he says, the next four, in verse 17, four, the scripture not only said to Moses, I'll have mercy, but now he says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up. He's quoting Exodus again. And the ten plagues that begin in chapter 7. Remember when Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. No, I'm not going to let them go. And the first plague comes, all right, uncle. I cry uncle. And then they're halfway out the door. Nope, not going to do that. Back and forth, back and forth. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. To give us this picture, the illustration he had mercy on Moses, and he didn't have mercy on Pharaoh. That's where we begin. Why? To make known the glory of the riches of his glory, as he tells us right there in verse 23, or in verse 17, that his name might be proclaimed, that our focus might not be on ourselves, but on him. Is God unjust because he has a way of doing things? By no means, a thousand times no. The second question then, he asks for them, verse 19, you're going to say to me then, then why does God still find fault? If we cannot resist his will and his will is already determined, then why is he blaming me? Why is he still finding fault with people like me if I have no ability, no choice, no free will to do what I want to do? Now, we're not blaming God for his actions. Now we're blaming God for his methods, how he is doing what he has ordained from the foundation of the world. 
So let's take a look at who we are. We're those that love free will, right? We want to start with our own merit because we think we have a little bit. And we want to start with our own free will because we want power. We want the ability to say that we have done something, that we have accomplished something. And so we want to start with our own free will. Friends, listen very carefully. In our confession of faith, there is a whole chapter on free will. I am not suggesting that we do not have free will. We are not puppets on a string. We are not because we do have free will, but not in matters of salvation. Because of our sin, we are dead. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. You are dead in your sins and transgressions. You can stand over a coffin all you want and scream at the top of your lungs, get up, get up. But that individual will not get up because he or she is dead. You are dead in sin and transgression. But God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ Jesus. Once he brings us back to life, once he gives us rebirth, he snatches us out of darkness and brings us into his glorious light. Now we have free will. I can, I can move this way by my free will or that way by my free will. I can read or not read, pray or not pray. I can do any of those things, but I cannot bring myself back to life again. In matters of salvation, friends, we don't have free will because we are dead, separate enemies of God. From the Garden of Eden, we wanted to be God, corrupt in every part of our being. So we read this passage and we think, but wait a minute. You know, I I know that's the case for a lot of people, but not me. I'm, I'm really a pretty good person. Down deep, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Or we think this, well, that, that guy over he's not as good as me over there, but he's not a real bad guy. I mean, he's not like Adolf Hitler. So maybe, you know, it's not fair. It's not, I tell you what, that's not fair that he doesn't have the freedom to have free will. We look at this p- particular passage here and we say, what about that poor innocent person who stands at the door of heaven saying, please, please let me in? And God is saying, nope, sorry, you're not on the list. You're not in. That is not the individual that Paul is describing here. Look at his response in verse 20. Who are you, old man? To talk back to God. This is not a seeker. That's what he uses the illustration of the potter and the clay. The clay does not have the right to say, why have you made me like this? I don't want to be this. He is showing a fist shaker. He's not showing a, a seeker. He's showing someone who's shaking his fist in God's face and saying, that's not fair. Why did you do this? I don't like it. I don't like it at all. We love our free will, but friends, listen. It's not consistent, is it? Autobiographical, long ago, hurling books across. I I would say, no, no, it's up to me. It's up to my ability, my free will to make a decision, to take that first step. But then loved ones in my family, dear close friends to me that were apart from saving grace in Jesus, what did I do? How did I pray? Oh, Lord, do what you have to do to break them. Do what you have to do to get them so that you will save them. Bring them to the very lowest place. What were we asking when we're praying like that? We're asking for divine intervention. And isn't that what Paul is saying that God is already doing? 
God has to intervene because we're dead in our sin and transgressions. Not because he's bound to do it, but because he has ordained that he would do it. He has mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion. Who am I? I'm a lover of my free will, but it's not consistent with the way I live my life. But who is he? He is a God rich in mercy, abounding in mercy and compassion. And he says, I'm going to pour that out. And I would even use individuals to bless you when you don't even know that you're being blessed. If I saved even one, if God looked down from heaven and saved even one, it would reveal his mercy and compassion. Look what he says when he's talking about these two different vessels. In verse 22 and verse 23, in verse 22, he talks about enduring with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He'll use those vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that, making his own riches of glory known for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand. Notice the second use has the pronoun he and the first use does not have the pronoun he. He endured with much patience, patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. But now, for glory, the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Here it is, friends. Predestination. Predestination results in election and non-election, or what we sometimes refer to as reprobation, the reprobate. God is predestined from the foundation of the world, his elect, and those who are not his elect. That this one even exists proves that he is merciful and compassionate. Because we are on the same plane, corrupt in every part of our being, unrighteous, apart from God, at enmity with him because of our sinfulness. But he has snatched us from there. These individuals act in the nature that is theirs from the foundation of the, the world. But what Paul has said in chapter 1, several weeks ago, God gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. He snatches these out and gives them his righteousness. He simply removes his hand from these and they do what their nature tells them to do. They are judged. Wrath is poured out because of their sin, because of who they are. That is compassion. Luther put it like this, friends, wonderful quote. God made the universe out of nothing. And until you realize that you are nothing, nothing will be made out of you. Once we realize, Calvin, Calvin put it like this. Calvin said, where the Bible stops teaching, we must stop learning. Why would God do this? I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is, here it is. He says it. He gives it to us. I must believe it and cling to it for this purpose, that I might then reveal the riches of his glory, that I was one that didn't deserve any of his goodness, and yet he has snatched me right out of that darkness and brought me into his glorious light. And so Paul concludes then with these quotes from 
Hosea and Isaiah, and all he is simply doing is saying, this has been the case from the very, very beginning. God never had a plan B. There is no plan B. God had only a plan A. From the foundation of the world, he predestined those that he would snatch out of darkness and into glorious light that his riches might be seen. And then we respond by going, oh my goodness, the glorious riches of his grace and favor that he has lavished on us. This passage is not about you. It's about him and all that he has done for people like you and me. I was in Colorado uh, about a month and a half ago. I'm a fly fisherman. So I went to Colorado with a buddy of mine to do some fly fishing. And um, I was standing there one day at our campsite, and we were looking up one side of the mountain uh, and looking at the devastation from the pine bark beetles. I don't know if you've seen any of this or heard about it. The pine bark beetles have, have eaten the core out of the, the pine trees, and they're all dead, every one of them. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of dead trees. I'm looking at this one mountain, and it's just covered in all of these dead trees and with a little bit of uh, uh, bounce of green here and there from a few aspens, aspen trees that were sticking up. And I turned to my buddy, and I said, I tell you what, <laughs> I did, I literally said that. I tell you what, if God is the, the creator and he's revealing himself in creation, as the Bible tells us, I tell you what, I wouldn't do this. Why would he do this? Why would he allow some little bitty beetle to do this? Just perplexed me. Two weeks ago, I was flying in from Montana. I visited another friend doing some fly fishing up there. Retired life is wonderful, by the way. I'm flying in from Montana, and we're coming into Denver. And I saw the devastation from about 20,000 feet all the way to, to the ground, all the way to the Mile High City. But it was quite different than it was several weeks before. Just a few weeks before, I'm looking at one mountain and the devastation on that one mountain, asking why. But when I was flying in, all I could see were these huge mountains that just sprawling, the sprawl of the mountains all over the entire, or the entire vision that I had, and I could see the glory of the mountain range, the Rocky Mountains, not just looking at one, but looking at them all, still, still with dead pine park beetle trees, the beauty, the glory of the Rocky Mountain Range. And friends, that's, that's Romans chapter 9. I don't understand it, but thanks be to God. He snatched me. It's all about God, the one who is merciful, and compassionate. Father in heaven, we bow before you as the great creator of all things and the giver of salvation, the one who saves us from ourselves, our own sin, snatching us from that darkness and lifting us to high and holy places because of your amazing mercy and grace. Let us leave here today, Father, with a a clearer vision of your majesty and your glory, your power, your sovereignty, your righteousness that you have lavished on us, the new Israel, Jew and Gentile alike, because you are that kind of a God. 
continue to do your work until the last of the elect bow the knee and then your son returns again. Even so, come Lord Jesus, quickly come. In Jesus' name, amen.